0: Some of you may remember the night in August 9, 1994, in a local network affiliate, after a special report that ran for most of the week. At the end of the report, the co-anchor, who was sitting there on the desk, who claimed to be a Christian and claimed to be a churchgoer, looked at the reporter and said the following things to her. Now, the report was about the feminization of God. And about goddess worship that is sneaking into the mainline church and now has taken over whole denominations. And the anchor woman who claims to be a Christian said to the woman, she said, to the effect, I don't understand the fuss is all about. Your God, my God, his God, her God. What is the fuss all about? He, she, it doesn't really make any difference. It does make a difference indeed. This kind of thinking is more common than you realize right in the very pews of churches. In this age of pluralism, it is fashionable to accept all views about God. In this age of relativism, it is politically incorrect to see God as the only one true God, the God of heaven, the God who said in the Ten Commandments that I am the only one God and there is no other God next to me. And that is why they're removing the Ten Commandments out of the walls of public offices. Even churchgoers Perceive God the way they want to perceive Him. Not necessarily the way He revealed Himself in the Scripture. Most often, Christians would take one of God's characteristics and they left it right out of context and elevate it to the detriment of all the rest of the characteristics of God that they all must go together. And ultimately, they fall into idolatry because that's nothing short of it. Other Christians confine God to one hour a week, or two hours a week, or five minutes a day, or confine Him to certain areas in their life, and not all areas of their life. Most people view God in the way they were brought up. Children who grow up in a stern, angry, abusive parents, most often, unless they are instructed in the Word of God, Unless they become to know the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will immediately think of God as a stern, angry, constantly ready to punish. It was Martin Luther, that Dominican monk, who God used single-handedly to bring reformation to the whole world. It was him, before he discovered the absolute, Biblical truth of justification by faith alone, of salvation by grace alone. Before that happened, in his cell, he would weep and he cry all day long. Why? Because he saw a window right there in the monastery of God standing with a sword in his hand. And every time he had a wrong thought, he would run to the father confessor. And he would confess some days up to 10 or 15 times until he drove the father confessor crazy. Every time he had the wrong thought come to his mind, he would go and confess it. That is why it was Martin Luther who said, he said, When you are tempted and the thought comes to your head, it's like a bird that is flying over your head. You can't do anything about it. But the moment it start getting into your hair and making building a nest, you can do something about it and stop it. It was Martin Luther who would finally discover that great truth. And he realized that the fact that he's being haunted by this image of God with the sword in his hand, ready to zap him any time he had the wrong thought. It was him who brought us the Reformation and back to the Bible, back to biblical theology. And yet there are some Christians who call themselves that we are gods with a small g. And therefore, whatever we perceive ourselves, that's God. That's wrong. Yet there are still some others who are so self-righteous, they are so holy, they think they are so right, they do not want to be confused by biblical facts about God. A wonderful story is told about Queen Victoria, who used to love going to her Balmoral Castle in Scotland. On a one beautiful sunny Sunday, she was being rowed in the river. Balmoral was right on the River Dee in Scotland. And the crowd was standing on the bank there watching and cheering the queen. When one of those holy people, so sanctimonious, looked at a minister who's standing nearby and she said, Isn't that dreadful? And the minister said, Well, what is dreadful about it? She said, The queen, she's rowing the boat on the Sabbath. Oh, the minister kind of looked for a moment and said, Well, he said, "Uh, You may remember that Jesus was in the Sea of Galilee on the Sabbath. She drew herself up with... Total indignation. And she said, two wrongs don't make it right. (laughs) You know people like that. And that is why all views of God that are not anchored in Jesus Christ are one-sided. They are out of context. They are incomplete. And they are inaccurate. The Bible said that God revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ. The Bible said that if we want to know what God is really like, take a very good, long, hard look at Jesus. And that is why we must insist, those of us who believe in the Scripture as the Word of God and His personal revelation, we must refute this reams of paper that seem to be saturating the churches today that's coming out of the mainline, from the head offices of the mainline churches, who are declaring that God was in Jesus, with Jesus in a special way. Jesus Christ was fully God, yet fully man. We must insist that Jesus alone is the full expression of God. No one like Him, No will ever be like Him. There is one thing about God that everybody must understand, and it is this. That he would not settle for anything than being at the very center of your life and in mine. He's either at the center or he's not there at all. He doesn't like to be kept on the perimeter of our life. He doesn't like to be kept on the peripheries of our life. He doesn't like to be kept outside the doors of our lives. He doesn't like to sit on the fence of your time and the use of your time. He doesn't like to be on the fence of your decision-making process or your thinking. He wants to be at the very center of all your being or He's not there at all. And that is why in the book of Exodus, if you read chapters 25 all the way to 28, God insists when He tells Moses how to build the tabernacle, he said, I want my tabernacle to be in the midst of the camp and not to guesswork, to get the guesswork out. They're measuring it. He has to be at the very center, but that's not all. At the very center of the tabernacle, there is the Holy of Holies, but that's not all. At the very center of the Holy of Holies, there is the Ark of the Covenant, but that's not all. That in the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of the dwelling of the Spirit of God. He has to be in the center. He has to be in the middle or he's not there at all. Whenever you and I try to move God off to the side, whenever we try to shift him off the center, whenever we try to keep him out of the center of our life, we get into trouble. Why? Is it like Martin Luther? God is zapping you with his sword? Absolutely not. It is just like one plus one equal two that if God is out of the center, you're in trouble and I'm in trouble. It is that simple. We bring the trouble upon ourselves when we shift Him off the center. And that is why our nation, I believe that with all my heart, and you know my love for this country, I believe we are in the mess that we are in because we have systematically removed God out of the center of our nation. Pray God that we repent before Him and that He will honor our prayers and we would come back as a nation to God. Joseph knew that when he is at the very center of the will of God, and when God is in the center of his life, regardless where he may be, he will ultimately win. When God is at the center, it doesn't matter if he's hated by his brothers. It doesn't matter whether he is in the pit. It doesn't matter whether he is in the house of slavery. It doesn't matter whether he is in Pharaoh's dungeon. It doesn't matter where he is. When God at the center of his life, when God at the center of your life, you will win. You will be a winner. And that's what happened to Joseph. When I was thinking of Joseph, I thought of an inscription that was found in one of the prison cells in Germany after World War II. And here these inscriptions on the wall of the prison cell went something like this. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when I don't feel it. I believe in God even when He's silent. This in Scripture characterizes Joseph's life. In the last message, you remember, where he has been forgotten in Pharaoh's dungeon for two years. In fact, there is a two-year gap between Genesis 40 and Genesis 41. Turn with me, please, to Genesis 41. There when we left Joseph in the last message... His hopes were running high, that Pharaoh's cupbearer, for whom he has interpreted a dream, that he will remember Joseph, and that he will get him out of prison. This were his hope. I try to imagine Joseph sitting in that dungeon. Every time he hears the doors of the prison door open, his hopes start rising. And he would say, now it's my chance. I bet this is the good news I've been waiting for. I bet Pharaoh's soldiers are coming now to get me out and release me out of here. I bet the cupbearer has remembered me. And as soon as the doors are shut again, his hopes were shattered. He gets up probably every morning and he picks up the pyramid gazettes and he starts reading. Pharaoh had a habit of releasing some prisoners on his birthday and the birthday of his family members or public holidays. And he would say, let me read, whom he released today. And he'd read and read and read and read. Joseph's name was not there. And he put that down and his hope is shattered one more time. Surely it must be government red tape. Surely it must be government bureaucracy that is stopping me from getting out of here. Not in your life. Do you know who was delaying his release? Do you? God. Do you know who was sovereign, overruling, in the cupbearer's memory? God was. Why? Well, think about it. Now, some of you are not getting uppity right now because you don't believe that God is in control of everything. But just listen to me and humor me for a minute, okay? (laughs) Just think with me. Suppose Pharaoh gets one evening and the cupbearer comes in and he has a quiet time on his veranda. And the cupbearer, being a smart guy, he spiked that, that drink real hard. And then Pharaoh keeps on drinking, and then he gets drunk. I mean, he gets real happy, drinking so much of that soup, that Egyptian soup, that he uh, gets real hilarious. And then the cupbearer said, now my chance. He said, now, Your Majesty, I have a friend in prison. His name is Joseph. He's a Hebrew boy. Would you release him? He's In his drunken stupor, he's not even thinking, uh, you know, what's he talking about? He said, of course, yeah, let him go. So that could have happened easily, okay? Now Joseph is released. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? God answered my prayer. What will he do? What will a foreign boy in Egypt will do? Two alternatives. One, he will go... As a foreigner, I have to go back to Potiphar's house or somebody like Potiphar back into slavery. Or there's a second alternative. <laughs> he will hitchhike a camel ride back to his brothers who hated him so much. That's the only two alternatives that were open to him. But no, that's not how God works. <laughs> because God was at the very center of Joseph's life. Joseph was not going to just be released. He was not just going to be let go from the prison. He is going to be honored to the place of honor. The highest office in the land next to Pharaoh. That's our God. That's the way he works. The cupbearer forgot about Joseph. But God didn't. The cupbearer forgot about Joseph for two years. But God is sovereign over the cupbearer's memory. God didn't want the cupbearer to remember He didn't want him to remember. Not yet. Until God's timing is right. Now, I want you to hear me out on this one. I believe with all my heart, and I'll support what I'm saying from the scripture, is that God wants to bless you beyond your imagination. But not if you keep Him out on the perimeter of your business. God wants to bless you beyond your imagination. But not if you keep him out on the perimeter of your dating relationships. God wants to bless you beyond your imagination. But not if you keep him out on the perimeter of your pocketbook and cheat him out of the tithes and the offering. He will not bless you. God wants to bless your home and your family. But not if you keep him on the perimeter of your marriage. You say, oh, wait a minute preacher, what are you talking about? I don't keep God on the pyramid. I always pray. I always ask God to come into my life. I always ask God to come into my family. I always ask God. I'm always inviting Him. I talk to God all the time. I talk to Him in the car. I talk to Him in the street. I talk to Him everywhere I go. Well, you may be praying the kind of prayer that says, Y'all come. How did I do? (laughs) God doesn't like, Y'all come type of prayer. Imagine that. I have an overseas guest, as occasionally we do. And I'll say to him, now, my friend, he said, here's your guest room. You stay here. And uh, we'll be busy running around. Nobody will be in the house tomorrow. When you wake up out of your jet lag, uh, just uh, feel comfortable. Feel at home. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. Just move around. Get what you need. And call us if you need us. Well, he gets up, and he goes to the bathroom, and the bathroom is locked. He said, wait a minute. They forgot it. They locked the bathroom on me. He goes down and said, well, I'll see and get something to eat. And goes in and open the fridge. The fridge is locked. And all the food is in there. He can't get coffee. He can't get anything. He said, everything in the fridge is all locked. What kind of a host am I? But I told him, he can come and he can do anything he wants. That's his house. He feels free. Please don't feel bashful. But you know what? That's how many Christians treat God. They want God to come to do things for them when they want him, how they want him, whenever they want him, however they want him. And they are not willing to obey him in the area where God wants him to obey. They do not want to put him at the very center of their life. They are ashamed of him so they don't take him with him in their social occasions. They have him there for two hours on Sunday morning and that's about it. There are some people who pray this way. This kind of y'all come prayer. Lord, help me in my business. Bless me, Lord, in my business. But our Lord... When it comes to writing contracts, I can write a killer one. I know, Lord, I am trained in this. Just leave that up to me. Or some people pray, Lord, I want you to bless me financially. But surely, Lord, you understand if I don't tithe, that's Old Testament, isn't it, Lord? Well, Lord, do you know i got this expensive house, this expensive cars. i got the future of my kids to think about, and you don't need it, Lord. You're right, he does not need it. You need it. I can't afford not to tithe. Some people pray and said, oh, Lord, I want to marry this person. I really want to marry this person. Now, I understand, Lord, that he's not committed to you. But you know what? When you and I get our hands on him, we'll make him committed. And then you live the rest of your life. You're sorry you married the joker. <laughs> 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 the other day, somebody told me that a friend of him was asked. He said, you mean you stopped drinking because she asked you to? He said, yes. He said, do you mean you stopped uh, carousing because she asked you? He said, yes. You stopped smoking because she asked you too? He said, yes. And you stopped gambling because she asked you too? He said, that's right. He said, why didn't you marry her? He said, well, after all this change, I thought I could do better. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, some prayers I've heard people say, oh, Lord, get me out of this marriage. Oh, it's hard, Lord. I can't take it. Oh, Lord, get me out of this. I know what the Bible said about the marriage covenant. I know what the Bible said about divorce. I know all about this, Lord. But I am not happy, Lord, and I want to be happy. And I know you want me to be happy. Now, I'm generalizing, of course, and I understand there are circumstances. But all these prayers are saying to you and saying to me is that God is not at the center of our will. He's not at the very center of our life. Was God at the, at the perimeter of Joseph's life? Was he sitting there on the perimeter of his life? Not on your life. No way. God had to have been at the center of Joseph's life. It was, He was at the center, no matter where Joseph was physically. He was at the center, no matter what happens to him externally. no matter who's offended, no matter who gets upset. No matter who disagrees. No matter who feels that Joseph was not politically correct. And it doesn't make any difference whether it is socially acceptable or not. God at the center of Joseph's life. So what happens? Right on God's timetable, Pharaoh eats a Mexican meal. (laughs) And he gets a barn burner. And he gets two nightmares, one after the other, one after the other. The first one, seven ugly gaunt cows eating seven beautiful, healthy cows. Well, he wakes up, goes down the kitchen, he eats some Egyptian wheat cereal, trying to get his system, you know, working again after the meal from last night, and he goes back to sleep, and wow, he wakes up again, startled. Similar kind of dream. Seven heads of grain that... Are scorched by the east wind and they look ugly, and they eaten and devour the seven heads of grains that are healthy and good. So what does he do? He wakes up the next morning and he calls together his National Security Council and he starts talking to them. And he said, Fellows, I got a dream. And he tells them the dream. Guess what these fellows were doing? I mean, they looked at each other and they said, Pharaoh, we don't do dreams. <laughs> Imagine. For an Egyptian to say we don't do dreams (laughs) is like an Eskimo saying, I've never seen ice, (laughs) and I don't deal with ice, and I don't have any ice. All the symbolisms of the dreams in the Egyptian culture are known to all Egyptians. Children grow up for thousands of generations. Kids grow up knowing what the symbolism are all about. Not the wise men and the magicians of Egypt or Pharaoh. Kids, they grow up knowing, I grew up knowing what the symbolisms of dreams are. There were thousands of them. I didn't bother myself with them all. And in fact, I repented from even trying to think of them because I don't think I have biblical background to them. In fact, in Egypt, if you wake up and you had a dream of snakes, you know that you have enemies that are conspiring against you. If you dream of watermelon, it means it's going to be tears. Now, if you eat it, you're going to cry. If somebody else eats it, he's going to cry. <laughs> Your dream of raw meat, it means there's going to be death somewhere. You're going to hear the news of death. Thousands of these imageries, they're floating around, they're taught in the culture. And imagine the Pharaoh's wise men and the magicians did not know how to interpret the dreams. So what do you think they were doing? They were scared to death. That's what they were. They were afraid to tell Pharaoh the bad news. Because when they tell Pharaoh bad news and he doesn't feel good about it, he'll chop their heads off. And they looked at each other and said, "Uh uh-uh, we don't do dreams. (laughs) Right at this very moment, the Lord whispers in the cupbearer's ear, now is your chance to be a big shot. Remember Joseph? And he said, oh, Pharaoh, yes, I remember. Just let me tell you, I know about this guy in prison. He told me everything that happened. And within minutes, Joseph was shaven, cleaned, bathed, dressed up, and whisked by a stretch camel to the White House. <laughs> escorted by Potiphar. In a moment, from the prison to the palace. From the darkness of Pharaoh's prison to the dazzling light of Pharaoh's palace. In a moment, from the electric chair to the throne room. In a moment, from rags to riches. Just like that. Just like that. It wasn't like that. It was 13 years, you remember, as being on hold, waiting for God to answer his prayer, waiting for God to fulfill the dreams that he gave him. You now I love it when people talk about overnight success. <laughs> and they never talk about the sweat and blood that went in to that overnight success. And Joseph comes in there before Pharaoh neither angry on the one hand for the injustice that was done to him, nor was he arrogant on the other. In true humility and to the glory of God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he stands before Pharaoh and he said, I can't do it, but my God can. And he testified to his God. God, not Joseph. Interprets a dream for Pharaoh. Joseph recognizes his own inadequacy, but he trusted in God's adequacy. Joseph recognizes his own inadequacy, but he trusted in God's sufficiency. Is this where you are? Joseph's confidence is not in himself, but in Jehovah Jireh. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And as Joseph going through and telling him about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, and then in his typical amicable way, Joseph goes in the second mile and he gives him a plan of how to go about this. And as Joseph was talking, you can almost hear the angels singing, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Praise the Lord. Seven years of abundance, Pharaoh, are coming upon Egypt. Followed by seven years of famine. And here is God's economic plan. You know what? I think pagan pharaoh here had more sense than Episcopalians, Baptists, Presbyterian, Catholics, and all the Colothumpians and all the politicians that we have today. He had more wisdom than they did. He understood godly wisdom when he heard it. May God grant our politician that wisdom. He understood God's sound economic policy when he heard it. Our government can save billions of dollars of economic advice if they follow the biblical model, if they follow the biblical principles, if they understand that the Scripture said you don't spend more than what you get in. All of our government had to do, just follow the book, and we'll prosper again like once we did as a nation. I want to tell you what the Word of God for you and for me today is. God is in control of your economy. God is in control of our economy. He is. I am yet to see a Christian person or a congregation who are faithful tithers that are ever not blessed of God. I have not seen it once anywhere. It doesn't mean that you will not get a crop failure one year. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about God's ultimate blessings. I have seen it in poor countries who are faithful tithers with their little pennies. And I've seen it in rich countries. It makes no difference. Faithfulness to God produces a whole different set of economics than all the economic theories that you're going to learn at Harvard. I can stand here and tell you personal testimony after personal testimony, but I can't. I don't think I can hold inside, say it without emotionally falling down. God is a faithful God. And we get tempted to push him off the center, get him out of, to our own detriment. It is my challenge for you today. Ask yourself, Lord, how have I shifted you out of my center of my life? Lord, I want to put you back in the center of my life. I want to challenge you for the days to come. Now, I am talking about um, as a person, I have not arrived. I struggle all day long. And I fight temptation all day long, just like you are. It doesn't mean because I'm a preacher of the Word of God that I have. The moment I think that, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be down on the floor. So when I'm talking to you, I know what the temptation sometimes They are very good things, not bad things. They tempt you to shift God from the center of your life because they crowd you all day long, all day long. But it's going to take a decisive decision in your heart. God, I may blow it every now and again, but I want you to be at the center of my life. Shall we pray? It is before you that I recommit myself for Jesus to be at the very center of my own life. Nothing will crowd that. Not my failures and not my frailty. Because that's a commitment that Jesus will see to it, will be made, and will be done. And I pray for all of us. Don't let the devil say, well, yes, but down the road. Listen to the voice of God. And obey it. And Father, we're not asking for worldly wisdom. We're not asking for any kind of wisdom except the wisdom that comes from above. The wisdom that lead us to repentance right now. The wisdom that open our eyes and says, Here, this is where Jesus is not at the very center. Give us that wisdom and give us wisdom to repent right now. That we will seek to forsake whatever is stopping us, whatever is crowding him out. That, Father, we would walk out of this place with a renewed encounter with you with a new determination in our hearts that nothing but nothing but nothing will shift you out of the center. For Father, we know that is in Joseph's life, that is where our ultimate success, as ultimate winning will come when you are at the very center of our lives. And we thank you, our Father, for hearing our prayers and for answering them because we know we're praying according to your will. In Jesus' name.